This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by the Allstate Foundation that believes good starts young. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. On Thursday, November 29th, the Washington Post brought together federal, state, and local policymakers, education researchers, teachers, school administrators, and advocates to discuss the changing education landscape in America. In this segment, educators and prominent activists on the front lines of America's K-12 classrooms address opportunities created by new technologies and challenges facing students and teachers. Let's listen. Hello, I'm Nick Anderson. I'm an education reporter here at the Washington Post, and I am very delighted to welcome my guests here. We're gonna talk about the view from the ground, challenges facing K-12 public education. And with me, real quick here, we have Jeffrey Canada. He is the president of the Harlem Children's Zone in New York City. He's gonna tell us a little bit about that. And he grew up in the South Bronx. He went to Bowdoin College, I understand and to the Harvard Graduate School of Education. To his left is Mandy Manning, who is an English teacher at Joel E. Ferris High School in Spokane, Washington. She is also the the 2018 National Teacher of the Year, and um, she teaches English, and she's gonna tell us a little bit about that work. She went to Eastern Washington University and also has a master's from West Texas A&M. And to Jeffrey's right, is Randy Weingarten. Not philosophically. To the right. (laughs) That was intentional. (laughs) Randy's the president for the last 10 years of the American Federation of Teachers, which is one of the large teachers unions in this country. Uh, It has 1.7 million members, an important political force. And we're gonna talk about uh, that. She went to Cornell uh, and to the Cardozo Law School. Um, Before we begin, I'm going to ask our audience, if you would like to participate in this, you can tweet your questions to the panelists if you use the hashtag postlive, and we will be watching those tweets come in, and we'll try to work in a couple of questions. So I'm going to start with the three of you by telling you about a call for help that I read um, from the second largest school system in the country just today. Uh, L.A. Unified School Superintendent Austin Buechner, he asked the city officials in Los Angeles about uh, how they can help him in response to reports of the problem of homelessness Mm. affecting schools in Los Angeles. And he said in, in a letter to the mayor and to others, quote, how can we expect our children to excel in the classroom when they are worrying about where they will sleep at night Mm -hmm. or where they will get their next meal. Mm -hmm. So I think this is a a good entry point, Jeffrey, into your work. And I'd like you to talk to us a little bit about the work of the Harlem Children's Zone and the challenges that it's trying to address. Well, first of all, thank you. And uh, I'm uh, really thrilled to be here. Uh, We have in this country uh, young people who are growing up under conditions that really actively interfere with their ability uh, to focus, uh, to study, and to learn. Uh, And there are places in this country, and uh, I've seen this firsthand growing up in the South Bronx and working in Harlem, where there are so many barriers young people have 
that if you don't design a strategy to help them with those barriers, uh, you are basically allowing huge numbers of those young people to fail. And what we did at the Harlem Children's Zone is try and figure out what do kids and families need, because uh, the families are also impacted by this, and how can we support them so that they can do better uh, in terms of their academics. Uh, and I think this issue of homelessness is one issue, but I also think we have this opioid epidemic going on in this country, and I don't think uh, America is really prepared for what this does, not just for the individuals, and we've seen the highest death rates ever, uh, more than HIV at its height, more than cars, over 70,000 people died from overdoses, but we forget how many people are actively living and what's happening to their children. Mm -hmm. uh, and I saw this happen in the South Bronx, saw it destroy the families, destroy a neighborhood, and that all comes into those schools. And we've got to figure out how we support those teachers in those schools. So real quick, what can schools do to be sort of centers of help in that situation? Well, I, I think, you know, what we've decided is our school is going to be uh, a community center as well as a school. Mm -hmm. uh, so we open early early, we stay open late, uh, we make sure there's uh, uh, nutritious food, they're caring adults, they're social work services. We try to provide young people and their families uh, what they will need to sort of navigate from one day to the next uh, so that they don't have to, uh, I think, try to figure all of this stuff out by themselves. Uh, and there are a lot of efforts around the country where people are realizing, look, we need teachers and principals to do a great job inside the schools. Uh, but we just can't pretend that in these places that are devastated by these kinds of issues that they, they don't need help and they don't need support because they do. Mandy, so you have contact with very specific kinds of need in your work in the schools in Spokane. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Sure. So, um, I, yes, I teach English, but I specifically teach English to brand new immigrant and refugee students mm -hmm. in the newcomer center which is for students who've only just been in the nation for three months or fewer and have, they speak very little English. What kind of needs do you find that they have that, that, um, that are, they're bringing into your classroom? Well, they have the same needs as most students. I mean, they're teenagers. Whenever a child comes into your classroom, they, you see them and they have endless potential, regardless of where they come from or who they are or, or where they were born. And uh, they do come in with some additional traumas, but we're seeing so many traumas just regardless, regardless of where students come from or the background. There's ACEs, adverse childhood experiences. That's really a, a kind of a key phrase right now in education. Um, and it points to something that Jeffrey's talking about, which is that whole idea that schools have to adjust and adapt to becoming community centers because it can no longer just be about teaching ABCs and one, two, threes. It has to be about teaching the whole child, ensuring that families have everything that they need because the economic system that we have right now in our, in our society isn't supporting families to be able to provide for their kids. And quickly, I'm curious about your own bi biography here. What drew you uh, to work with this particular population of need that, that you saw? Well, I actually started teaching in the Peace Corps. And so I taught in Armenia for two years. And um, it was that experience of being an other for a short time. And of course, my experience was totally different because I chose to go to the Peace Corps, whereas my students come here not because they chose to, but because they have to. Um, and so um, just being othered myself and experiencing that and understanding that 
the reason that I was successful in, in transitioning to life in Armenia was because of the Armenian people and the grace and the welcome they provided me. And so um, now that I'm here, and it's my 20th year in education this year, um, I've been teaching um, English language learners for the last 10 years. And I'm able to utilize all of those skills that I learned from the Armenian people, frankly, about being welcoming and making connections and reaching across difference and ensuring that everyone, every child, knows that they matter and that they belong and that we're so very happy that they're here. Randy, let's talk for a minute about West Virginia. I want to talk about it for two reasons. Um, number one, the AFT has been deeply involved in West Virginia. As, as I recall, you have a project in McDowell yes. County. And, and perhaps you could talk about the needs there that you've been working with uh, and, and working on those needs and, and how, how that has gone. But also, uh, it's an interesting year politically in West Virginia and with the, the teacher strike that occurred right. there. So first talk about the, the need that you have been working on in McDowell County, and then we'll, we'll get to the politics. So in some ways, just like what Mandy and Jeffrey said, uh, a lot of our um, advocacy work now starts with focusing on children's well-being. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's kind of like, and, and when we talk to teachers about it, I often say, well, think about kind of like the first rule you have, which is it's not what you say, it's what's heard, mm -hmm. and how do you meet the needs of kids? And so that child who's homeless, it, you have to, we have to give up the ghost and, and pretend that those things are not there, you have to meet the need of the child that is homeless. You have to meet the need of the child who's had some trauma the night before. You have to meet the need of the child whose parent was just taken by an ICE agent mm -hmm. um, a week before. And so that, so we all get to this notion of how do you make schools like communities? And a lot of our advocacy and work right now, like our innovation fund, goes to funding community schools. And part of this is McDowell County, West Virginia. It's, it's a, in some ways similar and different to what Jeffrey did with the, with the uh, Children's Zone because we are now the public-private partnership. We will not take over schools, we will not privatize schools, but we will stand side by side as the, as the head of the public-private partnership that is assisting McDowell County schools and kids. McDowell County is the sixth, eighth poorest county in the United States of America. The opioid crisis is, as, is, is highest in West Virginia Appalachia and Ohio Appalachia. Sure. And what we have done over the course of the last six years by focusing on um, well-being of children, powerful instruction, creating centers of community, collaboration, and developing teacher capacity and voice, is we have now lifted up graduation rates, first off, the state no longer controls it. It, it went back to community control. Um, the graduation rates have gone up about 12 points. Um, there's been a doubling of the number of kids who go to college. We have this amazing program with AT&T to get kids a mentorship a week in Charleston, a week in, um, in, in Washington, D.C. So this is a long-term commitment. This is a long-term, and in fact, we are going to build teacher housing. We're going to be able to build the first multiple-story building in McDowell in the last 50 years. But the point on the strikes is this, and this kind of melds together. What on, on each one of these 55 counties in West Virginia, 
one of the most important things the teachers decided was that they were going to feed kids and make sure kids were fed in the morning. So before they did any picket duty or before they went to Charleston, they actually created, they actually spent the mornings making sure that we had, um, we, we fed kids because poverty issues really matter in West Virginia. So let me, let me pause you for a second because I, I think you've made the point and, we, and we've seen it in various dimensions across all three of your, uh, your presentations so far. I wanna to turn to politics in West Virginia, <laughs> okay? So this was a really interesting year. Um, we saw strikes in West Virginia and in other states. Um, can you give us your take on sort of uh, what was the result of those, of those teacher strikes and uh, did you get what, what you wanted out of that? So what we want, let me just say what we want. We want what every single parent um, wants and every single child needs, which is to ensure that every public school is a place where kids feel safe and welcoming and have the opportunity to have the skills and knowledge they need for themselves and foundationally for a democracy in America. Mm -hmm. And that's, so, so the moment, so everything is a journey. What happened in West Virginia was that, that and this surprised the powers that be in the state at that moment, was that parents and the community, and I loved it when the coal miners were out there with the teachers and kids were out there with the teachers and reverends were out there with the teachers was that parents, regardless of what their view was about coal, and coal is a very big cultural issue in West Virginia, it's not just an economic issue, but their view was we need to support our teachers, mm -hmm. we need to make sure we deal with these shortages, we can't have ourselves or our teachers um, have salaries that are worse than they were in 2012 because the hikes of premiums in healthcare because of the opioid epidemic. Was it um, a success? And it was a success not in terms of, you know, um, making sure that everybody is getting equal pay for equal work, but in sure of making sure that education was important. And in fact, it was what was so interesting this year is that those same, those very same people who last year said, no, 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 we can't afford 5%, we can't afford to do something on healthcare, then said two weeks before the election, oh, by the way, we're gonna up your salaries again 5%, and we're gonna make sure that the healthcare premiums don't go up because they were afraid that you would see the kind of same blue wave around the country in West Virginia. So let me let mm -hmm. me turn to Jeffrey again, switching gears a little bit. Mm -hmm. I'd like to talk about how we can improve the outcomes of public schools. Do you have any sort of thoughts on the the best solution for uh, cutting into the achievement gap? Um, so, and how we can how should we hold schools accountable for doing that? Well, I think look, I think we have spent some time and we've actually figured out some things that work. Uh, in places where schools are struggling. And I think we have a couple of challenges. Uh, one, I think that we have uh, totally underpaid uh, our teaching force. And you, in places where you're constantly losing teachers, you have a high turnover, teachers are moving from 
poor, uh, sort of low-performing schools to richer neighborhoods because uh, they feel like they're not getting the support they need. I think that undermines uh, your workforce. You're singing Randy's song. I, I, well, you know, I, I think that, but we find that in any industry, uh, any industry that you have, if you don't pay people enough uh, so that you can sustain a workforce, uh, you're going to see people uh, leaving and, and, and moving away. So that's one issue. But I've always said and, and that I think we have to pay teachers like professionals and then treat them like professionals. Uh, you can't pay folks. You know, it's funny, you get to be my age, the Social Security sends you all of your work history, and I started off teaching. And I was looking at my salary back in 75 and 76, and I was like, what was this part-time job I had? <laughs> but it was because I was a teacher, and I was thinking, what was I thinking? I mean, I had two kids, and I was trying to uh, provide for them off of that salary. And you know, the shame is, uh, there are places around this country that they're not paying teachers much more today than I was making back in 75, 76. So but I think that's one of the But paying teachers more issues. isn't going to erase the achievement gap. It is not. But it is going to stabilize your workforce. And I think in places that you don't have a stable workforce, you can't do the kind of interventions we know you, the, the kind of training, the kind of development, the kind of supports that you bring in. You cannot bring it in places where 30 to 40 percent of your people are leaving every day. So I think that there's one of the things we have to do is to do that. Now, I'm going to get more direct on uh, answering the question of some of the other things we. I believe that kids who are behind uh, need a longer school day and a longer school year. I honestly believe it's the only way you're going to catch them up because the pace in school is always that you want kids who are on grade level learning one year's worth of work in one year's time. If I'm two years behind, how am I going to catch up? There, I think more you're going to have you're going to have to have more time. You're going to have to think about using that school building differently and bringing in supports for kids. Uh, if kids are struggling with algebra, uh, they don't need more soccer, right? I'm gonna they ask need algebra tutors, and they cost real money, mm -hmm. and we've got to be prepared to pay that kind of money to support these kids. I'm going to ask a question of Mandy. I'm going to switch gears to President Trump briefly. Um, okay. You met him uh, uh, the other uh, recently when you were uh, announced as the Teacher of the Year, and you had a, a couple of private moments with him, right? Mm -hmm. And you gave him so something. Uh, can you yeah. tell us a little bit about this meeting you had with President Trump? Well, I had just a moment, and so I wanted to make sure that I made an impact. So I spoke as much as possible about my immigrant and refugee students and how they're going to be productive members of our community because they're so dedicated and so uh, desire, they desire to give back to the communities that welcome them in. And so my students had written him letters about their dreams and their aspirations and how thankful they were to be here and their journey coming here and how difficult that was and how all they wanted was um, to be able to live and be safe and to give back. And so that was my focus when I met him. And he was um, polite. Uh -huh. he was Did he polite. say anything to you? Um, he said he would read the letters. Uh, do you have any evidence? And that it was he... tremendous to meet me. Mm -hmm. Did any of the students? <laughs> did any of the students get uh, a reply back from the White House? Um, I, I did get a letter back from the White House that was signed by Trump that did suggest, uh, um, based on some of the things that were said in it, that um, that the letters were read. Okay. That, that's about so, it. Uh, Can I just say yeah. one thing, though? I just um, talking about uh, listening to Jeffrey's response um, about the longer school day and the longer of this. Um, I think we need to be really careful about some of these discussions we're having around um, 
meeting benchmarks and, and, and keeping up and doing all these things because we really need to look at what we're measuring and why we're measuring it. And we need to reassess um, how we structure schools because what we have always traditionally done is had this um, breadth of knowledge and technology has really impacted how we can look at education and I think we can do some really amazing things around um, actually synthesizing and analyzing and applying what we're learning and going deeper. Instead of this broad, um, everybody has to have three credits of math and three credits of science and three credits of this and this and this and this, and this is our society's view of what it means to be educated and successful. I think we really need to think about what do today's kids really need? What they need is application. They need to understand how they're learning is directly related to their life. Because guaranteed, if we start that all the way in kindergarten, they're gonna be interested in learning. They're gonna to wanna to be there, and school's going to be that safe place, that place where they can grow into their potential, that potential that every single kid comes to us with. Engagement, engagement. What, what I think we've all learned a lot about what works and what doesn't work and we have to have a different definition of what constitutes success mm -hmm. and not just default to test scores. And what we've seen... But we need testing, don't well, we? Well, testing is a data point, just like a bunch of other data points, but there's a difference between the measuring and between what constitutes success. And at the end of the day, if we can get to what Mandy just said, and, and, and I think Jeff, Jeff and I would actually agree on this long term, if we can actually engage kids so they want to be in school, if we do some experiential learning, project-based instruction, um, the kinds of things right. that, frankly, private schools do, and they get measured pretty well at it, we need to take this moment where there's no longer wither public education or whether public education, but public education is viewed as foundational and find ways to build community, engage kids, and deal with all the issues. We're gonna have to build wrap up community. now, but I, I thank you all for your um, comments and for engaging on the issue with us today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.